All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to It's Lit with Mitch. I'm Mitch Broderick. I read powerful literature out loud from beginning to end, and I pause to react, make commentary, and just kind of dive more deeply into the content. The first book I've chosen to read uh, for this endeavor, which is more ambitious every day I get into it, was the Holy Bible. Uh, I'm an atheist. I've never read the Holy Bible, but I I thought that it would be really valuable to me to read it. I would reference I would reference you to the first episode to get a deeper understanding of why I chose the Bible. One of the things I've chosen to do is when I finish each book, I like to bring someone else on who you know lives with faith, who is a Christian or a, a you know a theologist, somebody who really understands the material so that I can discuss what I've just read and interpret it, you know, based upon their own understanding um, and really just try to better understand it myself. My guest today will be discussing Exodus with me. And so I'd love to introduce Doug Reed. Doug Reed is lead pastor at Bridge of New Hope. He is also the co-host of his own podcast, The Joe and Doug Show, which is a podcast basically designed to help each person in the audience to become the best version of themselves. Um, Doug, welcome to It's Lit with Mitch. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on and uh, hopefully we can have some fun and have uh, an interesting conversation about some stuff. Yes, sir. I think I think we will. Um, now, Doug, I really appreciate you joining um, because it, it certainly can be sort of precarious to come on with somebody who is a self-professed you know, atheist who is reading the Bible for the first time. And so my commitment to you in this conversation is this is not any kind of debate. This is not, we're going to, you know, I'm going to ask gotcha questions or anything like that. Yeah. Um, my real intent, I think you'll find is that I just want to ask you questions and better my understanding. Um, so if I, yeah. if I phrase something and it sounds like a gotcha, know that it's not my intention. No, absolutely. Um, and this is far more, this is, far more intriguing than sitting down with somebody else that uh, uh, will see this through the same lens. I, I hate the echo chamber. I would so much, it'll create a much more interesting conversation um, than to sit here with somebody who goes, Oh yeah, me too. Um, I would rather uh, that, that dialogue. It's fun. Perfect. Perfect. Well then let's dive in. The first thing I wanted to kind of get a ground, uh, a grounding on is would you just share a little bit of kind of your background and to be specific, not necessarily like your professional accolades, but rather sure. how it pertains, how your background pertains to your faith. I want to kind of know how you came to experience it, accept it, embrace it and surrender it and what all those things even mean to you. Yeah. So uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Both my parents were uh, the first, and I'll use this term to be saved in their family. They're first to pray and make a commitment to follow Jesus and uh, got baptized and I uh, was raised in a small uh, Baptist church uh, in New Jersey and uh, gave my heart to the Lord at eight at a Billy Graham crusade. Um, if you know who Billy Graham is, probably the uh, most well-known evangelist uh, to have ever lived and um, uh, went there because my parents worked the altars um, and helped uh, as people came down to make their commitments. Um, and I was there as a seven, eight-year-old kid at Veterans Stadium and I won't pretend uh, that it was all pure. I, I kind of wanted to stand uh, on the field where the Phillies played too, um, as well as <laughs> make that commitment that day. 
but I was in a good Baptist church. They wanted me to know, uh, that they wanted to make sure that I knew that, uh, if I didn't know Jesus, I was going to hell. And so I got saved like 57 times that summer. <laughs> um, it was, uh, uh, not probably the healthiest way, uh, in terms of framing, uh, my faith journey, but it's how I started. And, sure. uh, throughout that time, I watched my, uh, you know, my parents walk this out, never perfect, but always in pursuit. And for me, uh, about 14, I felt called to ministry, um, had a, an experience where someone prayed for me and felt like I, uh, you know, some people might say they're, uh, their subconscious or their their inner self was speaking to them, but I, I felt like I had a nudge from God um, that this is what I was supposed to do. And uh, so then I went off to Bible college and uh, ended up youth pastoring for nine years. And ultimately now I've been the lead pastor here at Bridge of Hope for uh, a little over seven years. So um, that, that's been uh, the, the small portion of the journey. There's a whole lot, obviously, um, you know, I've been through grief, lost my dad, my father-in-law, uh, I've had to navigate some real gut-wrenching stuff. And so I, I don't come, uh, to faith with, uh, you know, sunshine and rainbows and Coca-Cola, like there's some grit to it. I've had some scars and I've had to, had to wrestle with, uh, the difficult questions of it. And some of those things I settled with, I'm okay with not knowing it's one of my favorite things as pastor. When somebody comes, I don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. That's a very difficult question. Um, we can walk through that and we can cry through that or we can pray through that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not my responsibility necessarily to know everything. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm just another, I'm one beggar showing another beggar where to find some bread, I feel. So um, that's kind of who I am where I'm at. I'm married uh, 12 years. I have four kids, um, nine, six, five, and three and done. Um, wow. And uh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a busy, busy house. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. I, I often make the the quip or the joke when I speak in front of people, you know, they'll say to me, they're oh, pastor, you must really love kids. You have four kids. And I say, no, I just really love my wife and they're a byproduct. So um, <laughs> I get to spend a, a good chunk of time with uh, my family. I absolutely adore them. Uh, they're off from school today. Uh, it took me, I almost uh, texted you to say I was running a little late today because I came outside to six inches of snow when we were only supposed to have like one to three uh, today. So I had to dig my car out and uh, get here to the office. Um, but the kids have a snow day. So you're in the Minneapolis area. No, I'm in uh, Ohio. Oh, Ohio. I don't know why. Uh, I, I'm Our mutual I'm just friend is in yes, Minneapolis. My, my brother-in-law. Okay, perfect. Yeah, um, well, my brother-in-law, Andy, yep. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you uh, for giving me just some context on, you know, your journey with faith. And obviously, that's still unfolding. Um, Absolutely. Where I want to start specifically with Exodus, um, I've got mm -hmm. a lot, you know, some notes that I've taken, yeah. but where I think the best place to start, um, and you've, having been a youth pastor as long as you have, and now a lead pastor, you've probably spoken to a lot of people about the Bible or about Exodus for the first time, right? For their first time, yeah. I mean. And sure. in that, in that uh, kind of vein of thinking, what, what are the most meaningful moments or passages from Exodus to you that like you carry with you in your daily life? And, and you know, why are those so meaningful to you? Yeah. So you have the, uh... Minutia, like we can get into 
well, this verse is powerful or this moment is exciting. Uh, but I think if you don't capture the purpose of the story of Exodus and the power that it carries, um, it's the most probably the most significant book, I would argue, uh, in the Torah, which is the first five uh, books of Moses. Um, and the reason I say that is because without Exodus, we don't have the rest of the book. Um, the Jews essentially were a small tribe in the desert. They were hauled off to slavery. Uh, Joseph at the end of Genesis um, is there in Egypt. And then you come to Moses some 400 years later, and they've been in slavery longer than America has been a nation. And so to just put it in like historical context uh, for the audience, like at the end of the day, um, you know, we're not talking like they were gone for 50 years. We're talking like before George Washington, <laughs> like people that we consider so long ago. So for 400 years, they were they were slaves in Egypt. Um, some historians argue that they helped to build some of the great pyramids that we see in making bricks and, and people can have uh, disagreements on the historical uh, accuracy of that or not. Um, but some people make uh, some intelligent arguments on, on, on a historical front that they were actually there and, and which pharaohs and, and that kind of stuff. It's a, a fascinating little historical study if you want to dive into it. But um, the purpose of the book of Exodus um, is a, it's a historical anomaly. So all throughout history, you have people that are conquered by other people and those peoples don't exist anymore. Like when Rome came in and conquered somebody, Rome took over and everybody became Romans and you integrated culture. When the, uh, you know, when uh, Greek culture came in, uh, the Hellenization of uh, the ancient world, it, you have that with the Mongols and, and we could go across that. You, we could talk about uh, the Europeans coming over and, uh, you know, there are small pockets of Native Americans today, but not many. Um, and so in the same way, when you look at something like this and you talk about an ancient people 5,000 years ago, a small tribe who God promises a piece of land to uh, gets removed from that land and goes to arguably the most powerful nation uh, on earth at the time, Egypt, is gobbled up in slavery for 400 years, but manages to hold uh, their oral traditions, their version of truth and scripture, and then manages to come up out of that slavery and become a people um, is really the beginning of multiple times. I mean, you're going to come to the book of Esther later and you're going to come to uh, Nehemiah and, and elsewhere where they've gone back into slavery and come back out. Uh, and then not to mention uh, when Rome destroys the temple in 70 AD and expels the Jews from their land, you have this moment where for 1900 years, uh, Jews prayed the prayer about the Passover, which you read here in Exodus, next year in Jerusalem. Next year, we're going to celebrate the Passover and the commemoration of Exodus in Jerusalem. And for 1900 years, they had no access to do that until uh, in 1948, Israel becomes a state, which is a whole other, uh, uh, and I don't want to get into the geopolitical <laughs> side of that, um, that we could, we could dive into that, but you have to, Let's stay you have in the, to pause. Let's stay in the past. <laughs> Right, right. But you, we have to pause because Exodus is the beginning of that journey of slavery and freedom, slavery, freedom, slavery, freedom, and ultimately uh, the establishment of God's people and God's nation. And, um, and when you fast forward, one of the things that really has transformed my faith most recently um, is I've now journeyed to Israel four times uh, on pilgrimages and to go there and not just stand in the past, um, but to see, uh, you know, passages in Jeremiah and elsewhere where God promises that the sun will not be darkened out um, and, and 
the sun would be darkened out before Jews left the earth. And so when you look at that, the significance of that is in Exodus, God allows uh, his people to survive ultimately what was the demise for so many other peoples. I mean, when you look at ancient peoples and other peoples that, you know, you'll see mentioned in scripture, the Philistines or the Canaanites or any of those, um, you know, they don't exist anymore because they've been conquered. Um, And we could go down that list and the Jews are a historical anomaly. So when I look at Exodus, that's the first thing I see is this uh, picture that is uh, begun and that rubs against the grains of history. It should not be. We should not have a book that is worth reading by a small tribe on the back of the desert that's been in and out of slavery so many times and has been positioned there. I don't know what the statistical probability of that would be, but when you look at that, it's very unlikely. Thank you. I actually, I love history, but I, in reading this, I hadn't even considered that little distinction that you made that we shouldn't have a book that is as impactful in the world today from this small tribe of people who lived in, who, you know, lived in, in Israel, who were enslaved. They should have just been wiped out and assimilated. Um, and that was that because it's frankly, it's been that way for probably yeah. thousands and thousands and thousands of peoples. Right. Yeah. So that is very, a very intriguing distinction to me. Thank you. Um, yeah. So what, what is there a passage for you or a moment to you that you reflect on on a regular basis that that would come from Exodus? Um, and I'm, I imagine this is probably an easy question because most prob- most people would probably say the Ten Commandments, right? Um, that was not where I was going. But tell me where you're going. Tell me. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I would go to uh, Exodus, uh, I think it's 14, verse 11, where uh, he says, uh, you know, God tells Moses, look, you don't need to fight this battle. You, you need only to stand still. I'm going to fight this for you. Um, because I see such a parallel to um, the journey of so many people, um, the people that I deal with, um, you know, we do a big recovery ministry here for drug addicts and stuff like that. And some of those people can't fight for themselves. And I love uh, a passage like that because it lends power to look, I I don't need you to do anything else. I just need you to stand. God's going to help fight this battle for you. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's a, it's a real point of uh, faith. It's very uh, human. I feel uh, for myself that I felt the power of that. Um, but then, uh, you know, I would probably go to, um, you could go to the 10 commandments. I think that's a probably, that's probably one that's more um, culturally uh, people have dropped the, uh, the spike down, so to speak with, Uh, some of the political stuff around that and should it be up in courthouses and stuff like that. Um, But the 10 commandments is, is significant for this reason. So you have a people that have been slaves for 400 years and ultimately they come out. And uh, I, when, when I teach this, I often tell um, our people as I'm preaching this, I'll say, you know, they, they were um, set free from Egypt, but they didn't know how to live free. Um, just because they were given their freedom didn't mean they knew how to be human. And uh, the biggest thing that I see in Exodus um, for the people of Israel is God is trying to take them from human doings to human beings. Um, Ultimately, their whole life has revolved around how many bricks I can make for Pharaoh. And he's made that super difficult. And then Moses establishes uh, the people in the desert. He takes them out and you have the plagues and everything. But that Ten Commandments and the laws that subsequently follow um, are not just God saying to them, 
this is what you're going to do, or I'm going to squash you like a bug. But he's going, hey, for 400 years, you you never rested. So we're going to take a day of rest, the Sabbath day. You've, ne- you've never done some of these things. So we're going to prioritize some things because you're, you're actually supposed to be human first, not just the value in some of your work, um, which would be a great lesson, I think, for a lot of uh, Americans to learn um, that uh, we're not just the sum of what we do, um, but we're actually far more inherently value, valuable just as we are. So you said a few things that I want to mark on. One, when you talk about standing still, um, it's funny, I had highlighted that and I'd highlighted the phrase just above it whenever the the slaves were kind of reaching out. Because they're at this point, like most of them are regretting leaving Egypt, right? They're regretting. Um, They're like angry at Moses and they cry out, it's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness, which... (laughs) remarking on it on Americans who have the contrary view of live free or die. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting because, you know, Moses tells the people, don't be afraid, just stand still, watch the Lord rescue. He's going to come, you know, he's going to fight for you. And it's interesting that you then uh, I'm losing my train of thought on there, but you kind of went into this legal system that was then created. Yes. You talked about freedom, how they're now living in freedom, but yeah. they don't know how to live free. And yeah. if you don't know how to live free, you would yeah. think it's better to be a slave in Egypt than yep. a corpse in the wilderness because personal responsibility. That's one of the things I love so much about what the Bible did um, is it, it really brought things down to the individual, mm-hmm. right? It, it recognized each and each human being as one individual um which obviously created this entire you know world that i live in the the whole western world at least yeah um and you know i had no part of that (laughs) right i just came into this world and it was already set up and we even have this legal system that is still based on what i just read in this exodus um so that kind of just away that after they kind of now are establishing their little state if you will, or nation, mm-hmm. um, yeah. the Lord basically helps them to write their own, write a government and write a legal system yeah. and how to set that up and administer it. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. So you have a couple different types of laws, especially as you get into Leviticus. I'll be very interested to watch your uh, take on some of the stuff in Leviticus simply because some of it is, uh, yeah, and as a person of faith, some of it is like, Lord, really? Oh, well, some, <laughs> just, of, some of Exodus, like for me, some of Exodus even was just yeah, towards the end, right to death, right to death. Yeah. Um, but I understand we're in the uh, the Old Testament. People told me well, he, but, he gets a little nicer. Uh, I don't know if necessarily I, I would use the word nicer. Um, I just think that there's clarity brought to certain things. So one of the powerful things about the Bible is some of the laws that are written, especially when it comes to women and slaves people look at it through a modern lens and say, oh, how oppressive. When this was written, that was unheard of. When Weird. when Mo- when Moses writes a law that, hey, if you take advantage and uh, rape a woman, that you're now responsible for her and you have to take care of her and her children, that was not part of the ancient world or culture. The, during that time when it was written, that was absurd. Why would I do that? Women are just property. And so women are given some of the first rights. I often say to people that like, yes, in our modern world, we look back on some of this stuff and we go, man, that's so tainted. I can't believe that 
you know, it's so oppressed. But when he was writing it, it was revolutionary. It, it was the it as, quote unquote feminism of the day. It as regressive, but at the time it was actually progressive. Actually progressive, correct. Interesting. Uh, same thing with slavery. Like there were certain rules and you couldn't treat your slaves certain ways. Um, you, you had to take care of them. You had to provide for them. And it was a, a different uh, set of uh, uh, values. But again, um, you have a couple different types of law. So, you know, when you get into Leviticus, you're going to look at a lot of the priestly laws. Um, but you, you have ceremonial laws and you have civic laws. And so uh, some of these laws uh, and then you have the moral code, like we talk about in the Ten Commandments, you know, don't murder, don't uh, steal, like those things that are tend to be universal truths across culture. Um, it's, it is abhorrently wrong. It doesn't matter if, uh, you know, I had the Bible or whatever. It's just been across culture. I can't take another person's life. There's something uh, innate in, in humans, regardless of what faith background you might come from. Like we all have some sort of murder is wrong <laughs> at some level. Um, and so you have that, that moral codex that was kind of uh, put down there in the 10 commandments. Um, but ultimately it was to teach them the value of the other person. I mean, if you look at the 10 commandments and you go through there, the first three are about, uh, you know, loving God, right. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of deal. Um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Um, it's interesting. The longest command he gives, if you just count the words is the Sabbath is to take a day of rest. And why was he doing that? Cause for 400 years, they never rested. And so, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Those were all things he didn't have to necessarily, I feel like, convince them of. But to rest, he had to spend all that time like you can't work and your slaves can't work and your donkeys can't work and this can't work. You just need to rest. You'll pick your work up next week because the value of rest for us as human beings to live in, uh, you know, to recharge the battery, so to speak, and to be in a place where we understood that our not just that we needed rest, but also that our provision came uh, from God. And remember that that Sabbath, that third command, comes all the way back in Genesis, right? Genesis cha chapter one, chapter two, uh, you know, he creates the seventh day and calls it holy. It's the first thing that's ever called holy in all of scripture, as much as we throw that word around is a period of time there, where God rested. There's almost this, uh, he's exclaiming it as universal. If even I had mm -hmm. to rest, the Lord, mm -hmm. that if even I had to rest yeah. on the seventh day, then you and all your livestock all of you have to rest too. You can't do it without it because I had to rest. That's exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's also a, a trust because, well, if I don't, if I don't create, if I don't earn, if I don't have money, then, um, you know, maybe I, maybe I'll wake up poor tomorrow. And he says, no, 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 you have to trust me for the harvest. You have to trust me that I'll send the rain. You have to trust me that I'll do that stuff. So it's not just a point of rest. It's also a point of trust. Um, that God's going to show up and that taking that day off is not going to destroy the work that I've done. So from my perspective, um, I don't know how much or if any of, of what you've listened to, but from my perspective, the way that I'm reading the Bible and interpreting it is through the lens of, I understand that human civilization needs systems in order to work and, and function appropriately, right? So if I'm reading this, I'm also reading it more specifically for the stories and lessons within rather than necessarily a literal interpretation of events that have happened. Sure. Um, right. And to me, I mean, it just makes it what I'm reading are basically, you know, ancient wisdom is what I would call it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense 
that just just like you're supposed to put 10% of your money away, right? You're right. supposed to pay yourself first, pay yourself first, and then pay your bills and your expenses, pay yourself first. It makes sense for the Lord to say, pay your yourself rest first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First day of the week, you rest, and then you can work. Because that is, I mean, it works to keep you sane. Yeah. It, it was actually the last day of the week, which is interesting. Last it didn't day of the week, but yeah, we swapped it. Right. Yeah, Rome helped us out. <laughs> they should have stabbed that guy. <laughs> uh, okay, excellent. So talk to me a little bit about some of the contradictions that that it seems like God puts out or the Lord puts out. Um, namely, there is one of these laws. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is, but they're one after another. Um, that he kind of lays out where the Lord says, you must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. You yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt, right? Which that's a great, that's great wisdom. The very next line, anyone who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Yeah. So to me, that just screams, contradiction and he goes on later obviously to talk even more about destroying people in lands that the lord has promised them and so my question is how how do we reconcile this the first one seems like a great lesson don't mistreat foreigners but it stands to reason that foreigners would worship a different god or make sacrifices to any other god and so it, it almost seems like God is saying, don't mistreat them, but also you have a mandate to destroy foreigners. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, we, we have to define two words, the word mistreat. What does God mean by don't mistreat them? Um, and then two, we have to ask the question uh, on, the, on the second verse, um, why? Because um, he does this all throughout. So this is going to bother you. And okay. Samuel, this is going to bother you elsewhere because he's going to tell them, for instance, in Samuel, he tells them to go in and utterly destroy uh, so much so that God actually commands them to dash the baby's heads against the rocks, which would go into a whole interesting pro-life argument um, <laughs> that, that, that you'll be able to uh, probably uh, ha- have to wrap your head around. Um, but so, so God seems to do this as they go, as people come into their land or people try and attack them, um, they end up conquering Midian and, and, and elsewhere later. Um, but it certainly does seem to start and stem here in Exodus where he says, don't mistreat foreigners uh, when they come in. You're a foreigner. That's good stuff, right? Um, but what, what does he mean by mistreat becomes the question. And then I think the second question is, um, why uh, would God expel uh, those, uh, those people or destroy those people for worshiping other gods? And I think the way that I would answer the second question um, is found certainly in the Ten Commandments. Obviously, uh, if the Lord's giving this command and he's the only God, we're not going to worship other gods. Um, however, uh, like you're saying, well, wouldn't they worship other gods? And the way I would kind of look at it is um, he's talking about people that have come to live amongst them, come to be in, in their space and territory. So if you came to my house or I came to your house um, I do this quite often. So I'll use this example. So as pastor, uh, I just went and got my haircut at a barbershop. Um, now I went into this guy's barbershop. I, I had gotten his number from uh, a friend 
And uh, I go in and uh, this guy has a, has a different lifestyle than I do. Um, he has a different background. Um, he'd actually been in prison, so on and so forth. Um, he, uh, you know, was cursing at first. Now, I'm not going to come in and be like, hey, don't curse around me, bro. <laughs> it's not my house. It's not my barbershop. And it, it, he said one word and then he apologized to me. He was like, oh, sorry, pastor. I was like, look, I said, this is your house. Like, this is your, your place of business. This is not my, uh, I'm not going to come in here and tell you how, how to run your house. In the same way, if somebody came into my home and was like, oh, you need to raise your kids this way. I'm like, get the heck out of here. Like, it's my house. Um, and so I think from this standpoint, it's not so much that uh, God is telling them, hey, uh, you know, go into these foreign lands and tell these people how they should live. But if they're going to come and live amongst you uh, and they're going to continue to worship to their gods and they're not going to honor the rules here in our house, in our land, then kick them out, destroy them, that sort of stuff. Does that, does so that this, clear? This is a, this is an immigration proclamation then. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot of that uh, in here. Um, and it's, and it's always interesting to me because everybody loves to throw a verse up on social media completely out of context. And it always drives me bananas a little bit, but if you look at the way God tells them uh, with certain assimilation processes, if to use that, that, that term um, you know, he has certain prohibitions against uh, marrying foreign women. When they go into certain areas, he says, don't take any wives for you there. Go back to your own people and take wives. He does this with, uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac. He sends Isaac back to his own people. Go find a wife from your own people. Um, and he does that not because those people are uh, a different color skin, not because, but it really had to do with values. And if I stay within, and you see this in the Amish community today, you see this uh, in a lot of conservative Christian communities today, and certainly in a lot of Orthodox Jewish communities, they will marry other Orthodox my wife and I met in church. We, we married because we had, we shared values. And so I, I don't think it's as much as uh, I think it's more of a, a value statement. Now it seems. Do you think uh, the word destroyed is the accurate word? Do you think that could have been lost that, in translation? I'm trying to, and, and that is the challenge with any ancient text is it's not written. And we're not reading it in the original language. So um, I, I would have to dig uh, into the Hebrew. I don't know offhand. Um, I'd have the to only grab the only reason I ask is that it, it is a strong word. If it's if it's just like a proclamation on immigration, as in, if you move to a place, don't try to change it how you think the world should be, right? Right. Let the people who live there live how they live. That's right. one thing. You know, try try your best to assimilate to the culture to which you're moving. Um, and don't miss and because then it makes sense that those two are one after another. Because well, and that's why I'm saying about context. Oppress foreigners in Correct. any way. So when people move to you, don't mistreat them for immigrating there. Right. But then it's also to hey, the they need to assimilate. Who come? Yep. You need to assimilate. That actually makes a lot of sense. I'm glad I asked about that. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it is a context like that, and I would, uh, and you're going to see a little bit more of that, um, and you'll see some harsh demonstrations of that later. <laughs> Excellent. Um. And then there's there's just more legal stuff beyond sure. that that was really great. Um, one of the things also, and this was from the very beginning of Exodus, this kind of gets into, I guess, more of a philosophical, well, I guess we're always talking about philosophy here. But yeah. so I've always been very interested in self-esteem. I think that mm. so many of any individual's problems 
stem from a self-esteem issue or a, a self-efficacy issue. You yeah. know, someone actually believes that they are capable and that they are worthy of mm-hmm. achieving the things that they want to achieve, whether that's, you know, getting the promotion or, you know, getting the degree or getting, you know, whatever, yeah. raising a family, having a partner to be committed to for your whole life, right? Yeah. All of these problems just so fundamentally stem from self-esteem. And we do have a very, we have a self-esteem problem in our country. Well, in our world at large, but in our country. Well, one of the things as an atheist, this is something I'm going to tell you that I've changed my mind about because of reading Exodus or that I'm working on changing, that I'm kind of changing my mind about. For a long time, and I made this argument out loud to a lot of people, I was very frustrated because I felt that a lot of people of faith didn't have self-esteem and that they believed in their own ability to achieve and that they instead had what I had labeled God esteem, which is essentially through, I can achieve all things through God, whatever. And so I always had held that in my mind as, all right, I don't think that's the same thing as self-esteem because you're sort of uh, abdicating your personal responsibility in my, in my eyes when I would make this argument and you're putting it somewhere else that, you know, may or may not actually be there um, because it requires faith. Right. And, and I just have a bone in my body that has a hard time with faith. However, the reason I bring this up, I started reading uh, Exodus and I got into chapter three with the burning bush and the Mm -hmm. Lord kind of explaining to Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Pharaoh, right? And you're going to, you're going to tell him to let my people go. (laughs) And, and Moses is like, but first I'm just a slave. And how can I go and do this? I can't do this. Who am I? This is what he says, actually, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? That's a self-esteem problem, right? Yep. Yep. And God answers, I will be with you. And then it continues on. And then just, you know, another several paragraphs later, half a page later, he's still hesitant. Moses is still saying, you know, I can't do it. I'm not good with words. I've never, I've never been, I get tongue tied. And the Lord says, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be with you as you speak and will instruct you in what to say. Consider how I talk to you about the lens through which I'm reading this as far as Mm. having a system and philosophy that people can live with and learn to cooperate with one another with, right? Mm -hmm. If I just, if I just, you know, suspend my belief, if I'm a believer, suspend my belief and just say, we needed to have systems back in the old days for people to cooperate with and build a civilization. It makes total sense to me now that somebody could say that I am, I am able to achieve these things. I'm able to be successful in my life, my day-to-day life through God, I can endure these struggles because God is with me. Mm. Because it makes sense to me that God is the sort that you can actually perceive God as the source of one's efficacy. And it is the same thing as self-esteem. And that's not yeah. something I ever believed wow. um, until reading this. So any thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So uh, that's a very significant moment for Moses. So Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. If anybody should have had self-esteem, it was him. Um, and so Moses was raised with a royal education. He was smart. He probably spoke a couple of languages. Um, he was not uh, he was not your average slave. He chose to identify with the slaves when he realized his uh, identity. But he had been raised in royalty. Right. And so um, ultimately, he ends up on the run, the burning bush experience like you're talking about. But that calling moment, that moment where God says, look, I'm going to be with you. Um, that phrase reappears later. Um, when God tells Moses that uh, you guys can go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses is basically like, hold on a second. <laughs> We're not going unless you go with us. And, and I always go back to that Exodus 3 moment. He realized the power of that. He watched how God gave him the ability and the confidence to stand before Pharaoh, not once, but multiple times, and then delivered on what he said. And so when it comes the moment where God says, you can have the promise or you can have me, you can go into the land with milk and honey and all that stuff. Moses says, hold on a second. <laughs> You're not coming. We're not going. You can keep the promise. I would rather just have you. And, um, and I think for me, that is probably the the joy uh, that I have in a in a life of faith, so to speak, um, where um, as long as I have him, I have the prize. Like I, I, don't, I don't serve God because he's a genie in a bottle that I get to pray to and he gives me what I want. Um, but it's that communion with him and the fact that uh, um, he's with me and, and you do, you draw strength from that. And, and that's a powerful observation, um, that you've made, but you'll see that with the life of Moses, particularly in that one other instance, uh, you see that same phrase. He says, unless you go with us, I'm not going. So, and it's a, and the whole people wait and God says, fine. And then it eventually goes. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a big moment for me. Um, and it, it was happening as I was reading it, um, which was, um, which was interesting. It wasn't something I really even had to sit. So um, pretty big change for me to make because it means that I'm never wow. going to make that argument again that I had once made. Um, wow. So talk to me about why, why does the Lord keep making it worse and worse and worse for the Israelites before they escape? Why does he, what is the purpose I just want to know from you, what is the purpose of hardening the Pharaoh's heart to all of these, you know, miracles he's performing, all the plagues he's sending? Yeah, the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's a conversation I've had uh, in Bible college. I'm not sure anybody has the answer. Did Pharaoh harden his heart first and God just let him have what he wanted? Did God harden his heart and Pharaoh had no choice in it? We get in those kind of uh, debates uh, in terms of free will. Um, how much did God allow Pharaoh's own prejudices and um, pride get in the way and harden his own heart? Uh, and God just put him in scenarios where God knew that would be the outcome or did God harden Pharaoh's heart, if that makes sense. Um, and so uh, the, the heart, the, I think the challenging and the difficult part in that is, yes, God's people uh, are definitely on the short end of the stick, if you will, they end up, uh, you know, Pharaoh gets more and more angry with them and, and mistreats them. Um, you will see uh, throughout scripture that suffering is a um, something that it happens to God's people again and again. Sometimes he uses it as uh, instruction. Sometimes he uses it to change things. And I would say that uh, most people learn more 
from hardship and suffering than they do from success. And so I think when God allows them to be formed in uh, such a hard spot um, and, and be on the tail end of that, there's actually a passage in Isaiah where uh, God says, uh, he talks about uh, Egypt, my people, my chosen instrument. God, God refers to them that way in Isaiah. That, and you think about that and like Egypt, like oppressed your people, enslaved your people. Um, but it was there that God was forging and forming. And, and when something is forged, uh, something is formed, it's usually squished, it's pressed, it's, uh, it's not necessarily an enjoyable face. So why does God choose to do that? Um, we'll have to ask him. But uh, there's a lot of those why questions that as pastor, I go, I don't know, I have some speculation. Um, but ultimately, he uses suffering um, is a great tool. I mean, the story of Jesus ultimately ends in his suffering and death. And we believe as people of faith that it brings life uh, to people now. And so uh, without those sort of suffering moments, um, Isaiah 53, you'll, you'll come to that passage at some point, talks about the suffering servant. And uh, as Christians, we relate that to Christ, but any Jew reading the Old Testament relates that to the Jewish people and talks about that, you know, that they've been uh, the, by their stripes, by the, by the wounds on them, that they've been here, that, that, that brings healing to other people. And that sort of idea that our suffering brings healing to others um, and ultimately forged uh, the people of Israel. Excellent. So then we've got a few minutes left here. I sure. just have to get going here soon. The second half of Exodus. I uh, I kind of kept referencing it as like, all right, now the Israelites are free and, you know, God sent the Ikea order and here are the instructions <laughs> for building all this stuff that God has yeah. sent. Um, so I kind of, you know, reading it out loud made for less entertaining, you know, <laughs> it was less entertaining, certainly. Yeah. My, I suspect, however, that the actual interpretation of what we're reading or the meaning behind it, the importance of it um, is, uh, you know, much more than my initial thoughts. And so I'm just curious from the plans for the tabernacle to the end of Exodus, why is this so important? Why to, to be laid out with all of these specific instructions? Yeah. What, what, what do you take from that? Because they, I mean, he really spends a lot of time mm -hmm. and, and, and puts every detail into it. Yep. So uh, I have a, an Orthodox rabbi friend that I met in Israel, and, and he's actually spoken here at my church. He's not a believer in Jesus, um, but we would both say that we view the Old Testament through a very similar lens, if that makes sense. Um, he has said to me on one occasion that uh, um, he's like, the best way to describe this is like, we're like the, the spirit-filled Jews. Like we believe this stuff happens. So when you look at this book, you know, it's not just, uh, and so we Right. And so record. Yep. Correct. And so we've connected and uh, there've been times where I'm dealing with something in the old Testament. Now he reads his in Hebrew. So he sees it in the original language and there's just such a richness to some of the stuff that he brings to the text that I don't see reading it in English. So a lot of times I will bounce stuff off him. Um, his teaching on the 10 commandments is the best. Um, I, I really, I was very challenged. I went to a two hour lecture that he gave and um, it was, awesome. Um, but, uh, he gets into a lot of the minutia and the detail and so on. But as you get into this for me, like I'll just deal with the tabernacle, right? Cause we could deal with a lot of different things. There's a lot of text here. Um, but so with the tabernacle for me as a, as a Christian, right. Um, fast forward to, um, John's gospel 
and to Paul's writings and the references to the tabernacle is um, the tabernacle was creating a dwelling place for God. God told the people of Israel, you build a place for me and I'll fill it, but you're going to build a place that's worthy of me. And then you come to the New Testament and Paul says things like you are the tabernacle and God will fill you. And so it flips that language on its head. So when you go back and you look at the detail and why God, uh, you know, some of these words are, um, have double meaning in Hebrew. Some of these words carry a lot more weight. Um, and so reading in English, you're like, all right, they made it with this wood. They use that uh, silk. They use this for the curtains. Um, but some of those, uh, there are whole teachings, whole books <laughs> on just the tabernacle alone and why certain things were made, the symbolism behind them, uh, why God had them uh, use, used that way. But then you come to um, the New Testament and the, 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 the flip meaning for uh, us as believers in Jesus is Jesus says, hey, uh, you don't have to necessarily go to a place to find me, but I'm going to come and dwell within. You're actually the tabernacle that God uh, has made. Um, and then we could look at, you know, obviously there's a bunch of laws in here about the priests and the priestly garments and a lot of similar um parallels could be made. Um, you know, in the New Testament, we see Peter says that we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, um, a people for God's own possession. And then uh, you have that kind of concept here in Exodus where the priests did those things. Everybody else kind of followed what the priest did. You're going to get to Leviticus and you're going to have a real hoot with that um, in the sense that it's going to be probably more dry than even the back end of uh of Exodus. Cause it's just, it's priestly laws. It's ceremonial stuff, how to do a sacrifice, how to, you know, why we plant grain on this side and not that side and don't mix this. And there's meaning to all that. Um, but much like most, uh, historical books to put yourself in the, the original context and to see what they saw and to hear what they heard, that's the challenge of an ancient text like this. Um, it gets dry when it's just like, okay, don't do this. Don't do that. That we need to do this. We need to do that. But putting yourself and being like, all right, Moses is saying this to these people in this culture, they would hear this, this would jump off the page to them. Um, and that's one of the reasons that people get multiple degrees and study, uh, you know, the, the scriptures like they do. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, you know, my friend uh, Pesach is a fantastic uh, communicator. And uh, he brings stuff out of this because he looks at it as an Orthodox Jew. And so he sees things on these pages that I just don't see as a Christian. And then I'll say them and I'll be like, <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that it was just far more important than, you know, than what, than what I was thinking. Um, yeah. Obviously it's way more important if you're uh, an Orthodox Jew or if you're somebody who sure. was viewing this as uh, a literal historical um, event. Okay, well, before we turn off here, um, mm -hmm. what are some of the, I guess I'd say I'm about to go into Leviticus and obviously beyond that, in preparing for all of this, what is something that you would tell me as, you know, from the, you know, I've told you the lens through which I'm reading and experiencing this, yeah. uh, you know, that I'm, I've been a lifelong atheist, I describe myself as a lifelong atheist with uh, strong Christian sympathies, right? Sure. Like I appreciate, uh, you know, everything it's done for me. There's something inside me that's, that's, I would just say is, is incapable of, you know, making a leap. What mm -hmm. would you say to someone like me as I go through the rest of this book? 
So uh, when you said uh, Exodus three and you talked about, I was just reading it and I didn't have to do anything, but it came to me, right? Like that kind of concept of God's with me um, and the self-esteem thought process. Uh, I would just look for more of that. Um, one of the things that I believe about scripture is uh, particularly with this, the, this book, I don't believe this about necessarily all ancient texts, but this one particular um, in Hebrews, it says that the Bible is living, breathing and active. Um, and it's how, as a pastor, I preach Christmas and Easter every year. It's the same text, the same, I don't know, maybe a thousand words. And, uh, you know, you, you get through a couple chapters and you preach the same thing every year, but it is fresh every year. Um, and that's not because I came up with a new creative way or I, you know, had a new illustration. Um, but the, the text itself um, carries a weight that other texts don't. Um, and so I, I believe you have the, you're going to have more of those epiphany moments, if you will, where like, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. I didn't even have to dig for it. It just came off the page to me. Um, I feel like those are my favorite moments in reading scripture. Obviously you can study it. You can study the historical context, the systems, all that stuff. I would just take note for yourself at the things that jump off the page to you that you didn't have to dig for. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would argue that those are the things that God is highlighting to you. Um, but you know, you, you can dig through those and I would just make a note of those because I think if you go back and start um, as you get into later and you start stringing together, wow, chapter three in Exodus really stood out to me, this chapter in Genesis, you know, I learned this lesson here. Uh, you might even find a little theme. Uh, Cause I, when I read the Bible, um, cover to cover, I find that God kind of weaves um, a theme through as I read it, where I would go, oh, wow, like I'm seeing this in Genesis. I've read Genesis hundreds of times, but this time that verse stood out to me or that passage, and it tweaked this in my brain. Exodus, this stood out or whatever. And then I, as I look back, I go, wow, there's this theme that weaved throughout. It's almost as if someone was reading it with me kind of deal. So that that's what I would encourage you to take note of. I, you know, you're going to find plenty uh, that you don't like. Um, there's even some things in here of you know, being totally honest as a pastor. I'm like, Ugh, I don't know if I want to preach that. <laughs> um, but uh, I, as you dig in and as you find those things, um, I, I tell people this is one of, one of the only books that the author will read it with you. And, uh, and it's kind of quippy and, and a little cute, but um, I find that to be true. So. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, Doug, thank you very much for joining me early this morning um, Absolutely. to chat about the Bible with me. I really appreciate your uh, comments um, and just helping me dive more deeply into the content. Um, and I'll certainly invite you back on as I've got a lot to read. Like I said in the beginning, this is even more ambitious a project than I thought it would be. Like I started yeah. 45 days ago. I just finished Exodus. It's going to take me forever. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm definitely going to, um, you know, have some more questions for you in the future, uh, if you'd be so willing. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too.